This sermon, Remaining Faithful, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, March 13th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. As you turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, specifically Acts 8, you know it's not every Sunday that a preacher gets to stand in the pulpit um, and not only serve the church that he loves, but gets to tell his mother publicly how much he loves her. My mom is here this morning, and I just wanted to say, Mom, I always tell Dawn I love her up here. I want to say, Mom, I love you, and I am grateful to the Lord for you. For you. I, I'm glad that you're here. Why don't you come on up here? I want you to say, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and she has her sister Janice with her. Uh, who lives here part-time and in Linden, Washington, if y'all are familiar with that. Uh, But also, she's with Rick and Carol. Carol is um, my cousin, and uh, so grateful to have you guys here. They're heading down to Sierra Vista tomorrow. They got friends down there, so enjoy Tucson, enjoy Sierra Vista. Uh, But hope, most of all, I hope that you, all of you, all of us, but particularly those visioning us, there's nothing special about us. We're just run-of-the-mill sinners saved by grace. What's special, our Savior is infinitely special. And we hope as a result of being here, you will be more aware of that yourself. Amen? Acts 8, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 to 25, but let me begin with this. Glorify God by building a gospel-centered community that proclaims and demonstrates the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Glorify God by building a gospel-centered community that proclaims and demonstrates the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with that, that is our mission here at Sovereign Grace Church. By the grace and power of God, that's That's what we are about. If you're visiting with us, we don't have a big building and a big budget. We don't have fancy ministries that meet every possible felt need out there. We're about one thing, proclaiming and demonstrating the transforming power of Jesus Christ by his grace and for his glory. Now, if you stick around here long enough, you'll know that that we are not perfect. Of course, no church is perfect. And in that mission obstacles arise. Uh, Brian Vickers writes, gospel success go hand in hand with misunderstandings, false belief, and heresy. Even the best of times are encumbered by ideas and forces that threaten the kingdom. So we know that as a result in our gospel mission together, because of what Mr. Vickers says is true, This morning's text is very important to us. There's a lot of things going on in our text. And over the centuries, there's a lot of things that people have made this text about that it's not about. But I think one clear thing that it's about will serve us in our mission. Because the nature of our mission, obstacles that arise, disappointments that occur... Well, as a church, we can be quickly discouraged, easily distracted, and often too weak in spirit. 
And that has an impact on our mission. And of course, if you've been around here, you know that our, the, the, the title of our series is Hopeful. And that's why the title of our act series is Hopeful. We are, we are growing hopeful that the Lord will work in us and through us as we faithfully give ourselves to the gospel mission. And today, our text speaks a clear and critical word to that mission. Here it is. Here it is. This is the banner that waves over our text this morning. Hope for our mission is not in what we see, it's in what we know. And here's what we know. Here's what will be clear this morning. The gospel breaks all barriers. That's what we know in this gospel mission. In all the ups and downs, in all the the high points and the low points, in the triumphs and the disappointments, our mission, our hope is not in what we see, but in what we know. Let me remind you, uh, just before we stand and read the text together, remember where we're at. The church has been growing and advancing in the book of Acts. People are being saved. The gospel's being preached. People are added, and it's amazing. This movement, the way, has taken over the streets of Jerusalem, in a sense. But of course, a couple weeks ago, we saw Stephen, for preaching Christ, was stoned. And there was a man standing by named Saul, who we know would become Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. But at this point in the story, he stood as a coat checker for for Stephen's murderers, approving that execution. And that day sent a great persecution against the church. People, Christians, were scattered. Like Like those pouring over the border in Ukraine right now, Christians in Jerusalem fled the violence. Violence for one reason. They loved Jesus. And this man, Philip, fled to Samaria, and he took the gospel with him. And we learn what happens today. So stand with me. Let's read chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may, may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you may say may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of Samaria. You may be seated. Father, this is your word, and we now come to it knowing how much we need it, knowing how much we need your spirit to understand it and to apply it. And we ask that you would have your way in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to go through this text a little like last week. I don't have points that take us through. We're going to walk through this story. We're going to seek to understand the story. And then we will land on some application at the end. But you'll notice that that, uh, Luke introduces us to a Samaritan named Simon. And according to verse 9, Luke says that Simon was a magician. Now, by that, he doesn't mean that he pulled rabbits out of a hat or he pulled quarters out of little kids, or not out of, from behind, little kids' ears. Simon was a sorcerer. He was an expert in the occult. He was about the mystic and the witchcraft. And it seems he was not only powerful, but he had celebrity status in Samaria. Notice notice what Luke says about uh, Simon in verse 10. He says, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, from the least important to the most important, from the least impressive to the most impressive, from the poorest to the richest. Everybody in Samaria paid attention to him. And he, they, they said, this man is the power of God that is called great. Luke wants us to know they paid attention to him. So in verse 11, he says it again. They paid attention to him for a long time. He had amazed them with his magic. Wow, verse 10, um, where it says this, they, 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 they called him, this man is the great power that is called great. Uh, could you imagine having that nickname, the great power of God? Hey, who was the guy doing announcements this morning? Oh, that's Tim Lambros, a.k.a. the great power of God around here, right? Imagine. Uh, Luke wants us to understand that Simon was a rock star in Samaria. 
Simon was a celebrity in Samaria. This isn't just some Joe off the street. He was somebody. He was really kind of a pseudo-Messiah to the Samaritans. People believed he was from God. He was the great power of God. And apparently he believed his own headlines because did you notice at the end of verse 9, Luke actually tells us that Simon was pretty amazed with himself as well. (laughs) This guy was a, a megalomaniac. But things are about to change. Because do you remember Philip from last week? A faithful man. A man filled with the Spirit. A humble man. A deacon. A faithful man from Jerusalem who loved Jesus and was driven from his home because of it. And now he's in Samaria. And Luke never tells us what he took with him. His family, his belongings. Did he ride his motorcycle out of town? What did he take with him? All we know is that when he went, he went with Christ. He went with the gospel. And notice, he didn't keep it to himself. Look at what Luke says in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. He went with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just for something that he could cling to for his own hope, but to give to others. The very thing that drove him out of his home, he takes with him and keeps doing in Samaria. And what we learn here is that there's a new sheriff in town. (laughs) There's a new sheriff in town. But this time, unlike Simon, Philip's power to perform signs and wonders, it isn't black magic. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Philip isn't touting himself as Simon did. Philip wasn't building his personal brand or empire like Simon was. Philip, Philip was touting the renown of Christ. Notice in verse 12, he says that Philip went preaching the kingdom of God. In other words, Philip was telling them about God's eternal sphere of salvation where where he alone rules and reigns. He saves sinners, and then he rules and reigns in power as the eternal king. He says he was preaching the name of Jesus. That's just another way to, to... Philip was was telling them about how God saves and brings people into his eternal kingdom through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus is the power of God revealed for the forgiveness of sins and provided. In short, Philip is preaching the gospel. He's doing what so many of you do in the workplace, in the neighborhood in your home to your children. He was preaching Christ. People believed. People repented. The Spirit of God is transforming hearts. They were baptized. 
And listen, it's, it's, it's not that these people had never seen power before. You know how we can be drawn to something that's new and fresh? Oh, yeah, I like, I'm interested in that, all you Tesla drivers. It's going to fade. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I see you back there. Listen, they, they were used to seeing power. They were accustomed to being amazed by spiritual power. They were, they were magic addicts. But on this day, the gospel triumphed over magic. On this day, the light conquered darkness. As Philip signs and wonders, the power of the Spirit working through him, they, it came to the people with something that in all of Simon's power, he could never provide. He could never offer them full forgiveness of their sins, eternal acceptance into the glorious presence of God that fills the eternal kingdom of God through, through one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This was a day of a different kind of power in Samaria. In fact, did you notice that in verse 13, Luke says, even Simon himself believed. Even Simon himself says he got baptized. And then Luke says, he basically, he hitched his wagon to Philip and he began to travel around the city with Philip. He kind of became Philip's sidekick. He's just hanging out with him. A celebrity in Samaria gets saved. We've heard that before, right? A celebrity, we all rush. Suddenly we're huge fans because a celebrity got saved and they're out on the speaking circuit and they're preaching and we get all excited when a celebrity gets saved. Well, we should if that celebrity genuinely got saved. But that's what's happening here in Samaria. A celebrity, a celebrity gets saved. Now, look what happens in verse 14. So we move through this. The gospel's being preached. People are getting saved. Even this, this amazing man, Simon. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Spirit. So what's happening here is the news of revival in Samaria gets back to the apostles in Jerusalem, and they immediately send this, this convoy, this apostolic convoy, they sent Peter and John, both men who had authority in the church. They send them to check out what's going on in Samaria. Now, why? Why would they do that? Did something go wrong? Did Philip do something wrong, perhaps? Well, no, to the contrary. I think they were probably amazed and, and grateful and rejoicing about the good news of the gospel advancing in Samaria. But what helps us here is I want you to notice what they did when they got there. 
And this is really important. This is really important for the big picture of Acts, the big picture of the church, and indeed, the big picture of redemptive history. Notice what happens. Peter and John went to Samaria, and they laid hands on those who believed and were baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, Luke says, he says, they had been baptized, but yet not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. So what what is going on here? What is going on here? I, I, I thought we were filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 1, the moment that we believed in Jesus Christ. He seals our hearts. Well, some would look at this passage and say this is a basis and a pattern for a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. We know it as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I kind of grew up that way. There was a separate baptism. People laid their hands on you, and, and, and there was this extra measure of power for the Christian life that suddenly you had that other believers didn't have. Who, who had not yet experienced this baptism. And oftentimes, this baptism, well, it was evidenced by speaking in tongues publicly. It, it's really kind of a two-stage understanding of the Christian life. Stage one, conversion, faith, and repentance. Stage two, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, certainly, we, we do see that in this text. Luke says people believed I believe they truly believed. These were Christians. I don't think they became Christians after Peter and John came. So, so Luke certainly says, hey, that, that, you know, he certainly puts forth this two-stage approach. Here's the question. Is that meant to be the norm for us today? Is that meant to be the norm for the church moving forward from this day? Well, I would submit to you no, and, and here's why. It's important when we study the book of Acts to remember that this is a uniquely significant moment in redemptive and racial history. The context is this story. Just think, just think about the context. Look at your Bible for a moment. The, con, the immediate context is this story, but the context is also the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. That's next week. Something unique happens there. And then... The next thing we see is Saul gets converted. And then we see Cornelius. Each one of these, as we impact them, we will see they they are representing historical events in the advancement of the gospel through the early church. And it's a fulfillment of what we saw weeks ago. Do you remember the promise of Acts in chapter 1, verse 8? but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then this, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Well, guess what? They're in Samaria now. They're bearing witness to Jesus Christ in Samaria, just as Jesus said just as he promised, just as he commissioned. In other words, it's happening. Redemptive history is unfolding just as Jesus, before he ascended to the right hand of God, just as he 
promise. For the first time, the gospel is being preached to people outside Jerusalem through Philip. We saw that last week. We see that this week. We also saw last week that it's being preached, not just outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's being preached to people who weren't Jewish. The Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile. They had their own Bible, so to speak. They had their own mountain where they worshiped God. They were looking and waiting for their own Messiah. And of course, (laughs) they, they were not friendly company with the Jewish people. Remember what John 4, 9, what the Samaritan woman at the well said to Jesus when he said, would you give me a drink? And, and her response was, oh, oh, Jews and Samaritans have no business with each other. They were sworn enemies. They were a little like Ukraine and Russia. Broncos fan, Raiders fan. Yankees fan, Red Sox fan. Harley rider, Indian rider. So let me ask you this. What what will happen now the Samaritans are responding to the gospel and being added into the church? Will their centuries-old rift tear this church in its beginning stages, its beginning time, its formative season? Will there, be, will there be destructive schisms as Samaritans bringing their own culture into the church? One thing we see here, Christ welcomes the Samaritans into the kingdom of God. The Samaritans receive Christ. The question is, will the Jews receive the Samaritans? What will become of the church? It's no longer a Jewish church. Things are changing. God is at work. Redemptive promise in Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled before their very eyes. So in this significant moment, in this significant moment where the gospel is breaking barriers, ethnic racial, uh, socioeconomical. It's breaking barriers. It's breaking down centuries-old rivalries. In this significant moment where the gospel is breaking barriers, here's what I submit to you. The Spirit delays, the Spirit delays so that the apostles, the men with authority in the church, can come to confirm and affirm the Spirit's work, the, if you will, the authenticity of what is being reported in Samaria. We see the same thing, a little bit differently, but the same thing in essence that happens when, when the gospel takes the next step in a couple chapters, going to Cornelius, not half Gentile, half Jew, but a full-blown Gentile. That'll rock the boat. It rocked Peter's boat, we'll learn. Here's, what, here's how John Stott explains it, and maybe I should have just read this. <laughs> the most natural explanation of the delayed gift of the Spirit is that this was the first occasion on which the gospel had been proclaimed not only outside Jerusalem, but in Samaria. 
The delay was only temporary, however, until the apostle had come down to investigate, had endorsed Philip's bold policy of Samaritan evangelism, had prayed for the converts, had laid hands on them as a token of fellowship and solidarity, and listen to this, and thus given a public sign to the whole church as well to the Samaritan converts themselves. This is, this is the mercy of God. That they, the Samaritans, were bona fide Christians. How kind of God. How good of God. I said, if you doubt that God cares about you as his child... Just, just, just look at how he acted here. As much theological confusion <laughs> that he knew this would create. This is the kindness of God that, that he would delay his spirit to show that they were bona fide Christians to be incorporated into the redeemed community on precisely the same terms as Jewish converts. Brothers and sisters, this delay of the Spirit is not a basis or an argument or a pattern to put forth that there are different levels of believers, those with the Spirit and those without the Spirit. No. It is the kindness of God to protect his church and to bring Jew and Gentile together. Now, they would still have the problem. Just go read the book of Galatians. <laughs> but the kindness of God. And I would submit to you that given the promise of, of Acts 1.8, the context of chapter 8, the progression of the gospel mission in Acts overall, and the related teachings in the rest of the New Testament, I would submit to you that, that all of those things would, would lead me to believe and, and agree, agree with Mr. Stott. So, so I submit that, that, that we should reject any idea of a two-stage Christianity and embrace that every believer is filled with the Spirit the moment they're converted, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, and is called to pursue an ongoing filling of that Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18, through humble prayer for the purpose of empowerment for witness and to live the Christian life. That's what we believe here if you're wondering about what we believe about what's going on with the laying on of hands and receiving of the Holy Spirit after they believe. Now, of course, Simon is right there watching all of this. He's right there watching all this, and he is impressed. Look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he opened up his wallet. Luke says he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Simon looks at Peter and John. He lays, he watches them lay his hands on these people. And Luke doesn't say it, but perhaps they were speaking in tongues. But there was a discernible difference Simon watches, and we can only imagine he's going, wow. But Lucas told us that Simon was amazed. 
wow, I, I thought I was good. <laughs> these guys, these guys are good. And you know what Simon sees? He doesn't get on his knees and thank God for the gift of salvation that's come to a heretical and sinful Samaria. No, he sees an opportunity to enhance his magical powers and build his brand, if you will. To build his empire. And so he flashes the cash. I want that. What's the price? Actually, what Simon does here etched his name in history. Have you ever heard the term simony? You know what that is? Simony is, it's an attempt to buy religious power or influence um, or position. That's what it is. Well, that's exactly what Simon is doing here and his actions sent him down in infamy. He thinks he can buy God to build his personal part. He is trying to use God. I just want to pause here for a moment because while we might not shell out cash, I think we all need to be aware we probably have a little Simon in each of us. It's easy. It's subtle. To make my relationship with God about getting something that I want. I come here on Sunday mornings because this is a group that I feel accepted by. So when I come here, I feel good. My parents didn't pay attention to me as a child. I have found a family. And that's at the heart of why you're here. It's tempting. It's subtle to look, to make our relationship with God about having a sense of respect, having a platform so that we're seen in a particular way to have success in the workplace. When I, years ago, when, when I uh, uh, was in the wholesale mortgage business, I, I had a client, and I would go pick up his loan files, and before he would give them, before he let go, he'd put my hand before he let go, he'd say, in the name of Jesus, go through. And I remember asking him, what in the world? What do you mean by that? And he just, he believed that he could just throw in the name of Jesus around and what he wanted would happen. I do remember one day, I did mess with him a little bit. I opened up the loan, I said, I don't think this loan's going through. And he repeated those words right back to me. He looked me in the eyes and said, in the name of Jesus, that loan's going to go through. Pretty sure it didn't. Kind of funny, but really not. 
It's easy. Where, where are you? Did you come from a broken home? And your life's goal is to have a marriage and a family that pops to those around you. And the ticket, the ticket is Christian principles for marriage. The ticket is, you know, don't come, don't come to this parenting weekender because you want to have a tidy family and impressive kids because that makes you look good. The reason to come to the parenting weekender is that so in your parenting, you can testify to the power of God at work in you and the glory of God to those around you. The Lord will decide what your kids are going to look like and what your family is going to look like. So I, I say that just to say none of us are immune from using God as Simon did. You might not pull out your wallet, but you get up in the morning thinking that way. No one's immune. And so I, I would just submit to you that each one of us here, let's, let's take Simon's, Simon's sin here seriously. Let's examine our hearts. I thought about Psalm 139, 23, and just be able to say, Oh, Lord, search my heart. See if there is any Simon in me. Now, notice Peter's response to Simon's wretched request. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That word perish in verse 20, this is a harsher statement than it looks. That word perish there, it's the same word the Old Testament uses for God's destruction of rebellious people. You know, Peter, in essence, is saying here, here's a proper translation. Simon, you and your money can go to hell. That's what, that's what Peter is saying here. Peter is looking him in the eyes, saying, may your silver and you perish, end up in hell. I would hate to have Peter in my community group. (laughs) This is a curse. Peter pulls no punches in his condemnation of sin. Simon thinks he can buy God. He thinks he can use God for his selfish intentions and Peter immediately. This is like Paul in another gospel in Galatians. If anyone, he writes, preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. Pulling no punches. Well, this is Peter's moment of pulling no punches. The idea that God can be bought was absolutely 
repulsive and evil to Peter. And he, he gives it to Simon. And just as a, what do you think Philip was thinking? <laughs> Remember, Simon, Luke says Simon's starting to hang around Philip. He's hitched his wagon to him. And I would say chances are Philip probably introduced Simon to Peter. Hey, hey, uh, Phil, uh, Peter, come here. I want you to meet Simon. Here's what I want you to know. Simon is a rock star in Samaria. He got saved. This is a good guy to have on our side. Everybody knows. He's influential. People pay attention to him. This is a good thing. This is going to serve our... I wonder what Philip was thinking as he stood there and listened to Peter. And Peter's not done with Philip. Notice, or with Simon. Notice in verse 21, he goes on to say, you've neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. In other words, Peter says, Simon, you have no place in what God is doing here. You're not part of this. Why? Because your heart's not right with God. And he's saying, listen, Simon, you don't get it. Your heart's not right with God. So, so, so really, you, you, you don't have a hand in this. You, God's kingdom isn't about what you can do or what you can get or how you are perceived. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about trusting Jesus. It's about loving Jesus. And that all comes by grace. So Peter says, listen, I mean, the, go- the gospel here is breaking, the gospel is breaking barriers. We, we, we see that. But Simon reminds us, it's not breaking barriers to the power or influence of man. And God certainly isn't, the power of God certainly isn't a commodity to be used, my man, to break barriers. The gospel is breaking barriers through men like Philip who are preaching Christ boldly, combined with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the listeners' hearts. Repentance and faith. Simon, you have no lot in this matter. And here's why. You think it's about you. And you know what that tells me? Your heart's not right with God the way you think it is. He keeps going. He's not done. Look at verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Those two phrases the gall of bitterness and the the bond of iniquity, those are Old Testament references to idolatry. Peter calls Simon to repent of his self-worship, his wicked cravings for power, fame, and influence. And, and, And what I love is Peter doesn't write Simon off. Do you notice that? I mean, that, that whole idea of you and your money, you know where you can go, that's strong. Peter could have walked away and said, you don't have a lot in this matter, no more, I'm out of here. He, he appeals. 
Therefore, repent. You're an idolater. Your heart is filled with sin. Your heart is hard toward God. It's not right before God. And the only way to be a part of this is to be right before God. He doesn't abandon him. He keeps, he keeps appealing to him. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, here's what I want you to hear. Apart from a relationship that comes by grace and through faith and grace and faith, both being the gift of God, so that no one in this room can boast apart from that. You're Simon. I don't say that to judge you. I say that to say that's what the word of God puts forth. The only way to be right before the Lord is to come before him in repentance and faith. Repentance is simply turning from my sin. It's acknowledging I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I turn from my sin, and in turning from my sin, I don't turn to something else. I turn to Christ, who is who is my substitute, who is my righteousness, who is my justification. As we heard this morning communion, who is the bread of life, who doesn't just offer the bread of life, but is the very bread of life. And there's no litmus test. You don't need to go through a theological course to make sure you understand all the tenets of Christianity. You simply, and it's a mystery, how does a hard heart come to a place of bowing? The spirit is at work, but it comes, your call is, will you believe? Will you repent of your sin this morning and believe in Jesus Christ? Not so that you can get something from God, but so that God will receive you as his holy and blameless son or daughter bound for the eternal kingdom of God with saints from all walks of life from every part of history who will eternally stand around the throne whatever that will look like and whose joy will moment by moment be exceedingly Upward with no end in sight. Now, as for Simon, Luke doesn't tell us what happened to him. Only eternity will tell uh, if his heart was truly right with God. And again, this text is not about once saved, always saved. We might be able to draw some things here, but that's not the intent. That's not why it's here. This is here to show us something about our mission But his, we do get his response in verse 24. Did you notice that? Did you notice? Look at verse 24 with me. He says, and Simon answered. Man, I don't even know if I'd have said a word <laughs> after hearing all that from Peter. I'd have said, Peter, just tell me what to do. <laughs> Listen to Simon's response. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. But don't miss this. Peter didn't say, I can pray to God and you'll be forgiven. 
Peter didn't say, I stand before you and God. Some of you raised Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. Peter said, Simon, you need to repent. Simon doesn't do it. He says, no, you. You're the man with the power. You pray for me that none of this will happen to me. Do you see how man-centered and self-centered Simon remains? So I, I, I don't know what happened to Simon. Um, we really don't run into Simon again. There's extra biblical literature that, that talks about Simon Magus. That, that's the Simon here, that, that he went on to champion Gnosticism. Uh, some say that he actually began to follow Peter around and really become a thorn in his side and harass him in his gospel mission. But, but we don't know. Scripture, scripture itself doesn't tell us, but, but I would submit that, that his words here leads me to believe that, that Simon's place in redemptive history is that what we find is one of the first false believers in the book of Acts. So I want to end with some brief application. This mission that we see in Acts is our mission. And although we don't know what happened to Simon, we do know what happened to the disciples. Notice verse 25. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Do you see what happened? The disciples kept preaching the gospel. They kept going. Despite the obstacle and despite the spectacle and perhaps in Philip's eyes, the disappointment personally of Simon, they stayed on mission. They kept preaching Christ. No one doubted the power of the gospel. No one said, whoa, we've never encountered this before. Are we on the right path? No, Luke Luke immediately says, why does does Luke do this? Well, we'll ask him in heaven, but, but I would submit to you one of the reasons why he does this is he wants us to see the mission is marching forward. The gospel is advancing, and it is unstoppable. <laughs> no, no obstacles, no spectacles. I imagine some people probably really enjoyed this assignment, getting to know him maybe, and thought, wow. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? When somebody we've invested in, when someone we've lived the Christian life with, when someone that we look at their life, we go, wow, that person is a true believer. I love my brother, Rick. And then over time, this isn't a prophetic word, by the way, so. Then over time, and through situations and events of life, God reveals that his heart was never truly right before God. Listen, like you, I, I, over the years, I've shared the gospel with people, and I believe some were genuinely saved. 
But I've also shared the gospel with people who seemingly were saved, but later I found out they weren't. I had a gentleman I worked with years ago, and what I thought was that I led him to the Lord. He got saved. I shared the gospel with him multiple times. He confessed Christ, joined the church, was part of our community group. We were Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpening iron with each other. But one day it became very clear. He was, he never had his heart right before God. And it was hard. It was hard. And I want to submit to you that when that happens, it can be difficult for us. It can be discouraging for us. It can be frustrating and sad. It it can be confusing and maybe even for some a little hurtful. But worse yet, it can erode your faith in the gospel and your joy for the mission. When we don't see God working as we think that he should be working. So I just, I, I, I'm, I, just, I just want to take a minute here and give you three principles from this story that I think should encourage us and produce hope for a gospel mission. I, I'm, not, I'm not diving on these. I'm just mentioning them. Uh, they'll be in the sermon spotlight so you can go back. But, but principle number one that we see from this story, the gospel has broken all barriers, but not every heart will be broken by the gospel. We need to remember that. Simon wasn't saved but many Samaritans were, just as God promised. Principle number two from this story, we are called to be a faithful witness to others, but not the savior of others. That's important. Philip preached to Simon, but he couldn't save Simon. Philip had to trust Simon to God to do what only God can do. And the third principle from this story that I believe if we, if we keep it in our heads and hearts, it will encourage us and produce joy and faith for the mission, even in the downs, is that God's kingdom is still being built. We are not in heaven yet. So as it says in verse 25, we keep preaching the unstoppable gospel that gives joy and life to the world around us. Even when somebody that we love keeps rejecting it, even when somebody that we thought was saved and it turns out they're not, we, the mission hasn't changed. We keep preaching Christ. I love what Brian Vickers again said. Even in the midst of a dramatic move in the trajectory of the gospel, that is the salvation for Samaritans, an obstacle arises. That was Simon. A reminder that the church is moving toward the fulfillment of the kingdom, but has not yet reached it. Have you given up? Have you given up on sharing the gospel with someone? A wayward child? A spouse? A co-worker, a neighbor, 
Have you become skeptical, skeptical about the power of the gospel or lost heart in your call to evangelism because you're not seeing fruit? This story reminds us of something. God is at work. His plan, despite what you see, his plan is unfolding. He is saving and sanctifying sinners. He is building his church, and he is spreading his glory. Therefore, in the midst of the obstacles, in the midst of the disappointments, in the midst of the Simons, remain faithful. Remembering hope for your mission is not in what you see. It's in what you know.